0: In this episode, we wait out there with Tom Rosenbauer from Manchester, Vermont. Tom has been fly fishing and tying for nearly all his life. After college, he got a job as a retail clerk at Orvis when it was still a small but growing business in Vermont. Slowly but surely, Tom's emphasis on teaching and education helped develop him into a leader and educator at both Orvis and within the fly fishing community. Tom is the author of over 20 fly fishing books, has created too many educational articles and videos to count, and is the host of the Orvis Fly Fishing podcast with over 12 million downloads. His efforts have helped untold numbers of anglers on the water, myself included. Besides the great personal gratitude I have for the resources Tom has put out into the world, perhaps what is most impressive to me is his persistent pursuit of learning and effortless humility. We discuss what excites Tom about fly fishing these days, His thoughts on the creative process of writing, and exploring the richness of different trout streams. Tom also shares his ideas on spot burning, catch and release, conservation, and overcrowding. Welcome to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Shemchuk. At Wade Out There we believe fly fishing is special, but not elite and that anyone can become a great fly fisher if they are willing to go, learn, and teach. Join me as I talk with other fly fishermen and women about their unique journeys into fly fishing, the rivers they fish, and the tactics and philosophies they practice. For those who can never leave the river in their hearts, this podcast is dedicated to helping you make the memories that keep us all coming back to wait out there. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for being on the way Out There podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Jason, for having me on today. Looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, it's my pleasure. I you pro, I, you don't know this, but we were talking a little bit before the show about where I was based out of, and I used to live in Kansas City, Missouri. And I was looking forward to meeting you in about in March of 2020, right before COVID. There yeah. Was a, there was a, there was a fly fishing expo. Somebody reached out to me from Omaha, Nebraska, and there was a fly fishing expo out there and they were interested in me coming out and setting up like an art stand, like to kind of show my art. And you had been the guest speaker and I was like, Oh, this yeah. is going to be great. I'm going to get to, you know, mm-hmm. meet, meet Tom and maybe paint one of his fish or something or just at least shake his hand. So that was a while ago. And then, you know, COVID nixed that. So
1: I did I did actually go and speak in uh, uh last in in March of March, March of 2022
0: 2022 I and know.
1: got to fish in Missouri for the first time and fish some of those wild uh, rainbow streams and it was delightful
0: oh you did okay cool mm-hmm. by, yeah. by that time I, we, we won't already... mention
1: any names but uh...
0: <laughs> by that time I was deep in the move to Utah <laughs> so it was a little less convenient for me to get out to the to the one that they they finally did were you down in the like the ozarks area fishing for trout Mm-hmm. okay yeah yeah it's fun that, that used to be the three and a half hour drive that i would make to any time i kind of wanted to go for trout and that was one of the big reasons we moved out of that area
1: uh, beautiful little strip beautiful little streams though Beautiful, yeah. There's, yeah, there's
0: one little tiny one that's got some really nice stream uh, fishing. That was the closest one too. So that was the one, but they got snakes, Tom. I'm not, I don't want to be waiting around in the summer with snakes and moccasins.
1: Yeah. I was there in late, I think late winter, so we didn't have any snakes.
0: Tom, I thought I would start a little bit with one of the reasons why I was really excited to have you on the show. Obviously you're very well known in the fly fishing uh, community, but you know, I didn't have social media before I started Wade out there. And when I got into doing what I'm doing, I started you know, looking at folks and kind of seeing what's up in the community. And I ran across uh, a post that you put, you had a, a beautiful trout and it had a San Juan worm in its mouth. And I, if you don't mind, I'd like to read this uh, to folks because I think this sums up, you know, at Wade out there, we say fly fishing is special, but not elite. And When I read that, when I read this, it was, it really rang true. And I was like, I I know that this is the kind of guy that would uh, really resonate with my, with my listeners. So (laughs) uh, here I go. Ready? Yep. Damn. I knew that worm didn't look quite right. I always find it funny that people look down on worm flies, even when trout are stuffed to the gills with natural aquatic or terrestrial worms why is it cool to imitate a mayfly nymph, but not a worm? Even when you're imitating a natural food source in both cases. <laughs> and I read that. I was like, yes, thank you. Because I understand if people don't want to fish, you know, worms, they like dries or they like nymphs, but just when people are like, oh, that's not cool or that's not real fly fishing. That's where I kind of draw a line and say, Hey man, come on. And when I read that, I kind of felt like, yeah, had a kindred spirit here, so I don't know. Did you want to comment more on that or
1: No, if you know, if I can stick it in my vice and and wind something and 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 make a fl- make a fly out of it, then I consider it a fly, whether it's a you know, a worm or an egg or uh mop fly, whatever. Fly. If, I, if I can make it, if I can make it in my vice, if I have to glue a plastic bead on the hook, I'm I'm not really in on that.
0: Are there flies that you that you don't like to tie? I read I watched a video one time you were tying a copper john and you're like, "Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of work that goes into this thing, but I'm going to show yeah. you how to tie this anyway."
1: I, I don't like I don't like really complex flies and my own patterns are pretty simple, but um, you know, Parachute Adams is Parachute Adams is still really tough for me as it is for a lot of people.
0: Yeah. Is it the post? Is it the post that does? It yeah,
1: or? it's the post and the hackle. And I never just, I just never feel that they're quite right.
0: Yeah. The post is difficult for me as well. Um, I yeah. haven't quite, quite got to it, but sometimes I, I get after I try because sometimes I have trouble seeing them. So, so mm-hmm. for you, time flies is about like, wh- is this going to be practical? Can I, can I, catch fish with this versus kind of the, the artistic side of it. Is that a true Well Yeah. I
1: mean, yeah. I mean, sometimes, sometimes I do like to, uh, my own patterns are fairly simple, but sometimes I do like to, you know, I see a pattern online and it looks pretty cool and I will, you know, I will go through all the steps and, you know, at one time I was into tying full dress Atlantic salmon flies. So it's not, not that I'm not that I won't tie a more complex fly, but, um, you know, I, I tie to I tie to experiment, but I also tie to fill in my boxes. Fair yeah. enough. <laughs> I, I lose a lot of flies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I lose a lot of flies. I was actually just yesterday, I was out on the river and, I, you know, I knew I wanted an orange scud. And I've talked about the orange scud on this program before, but it's a fly that I love. And, uh, you know, I didn't have any in my box. I knew I didn't have any before I went out. I knew I probably was going to need one or want one. And I got out there. I'm like, man, I really want an orange scud. And it was one of those days, you know, I didn't catch many fish. I didn't catch any fish, caught one and got off. But, uh, I did the one that did hook up with my son had tied and it was orange. It had orange uh-huh. thread and orange dubbing. And I was like, well, this is good enough. It's all I got. And I'm going to tie it on because it's orange. And, uh, I caught a fish, you know, and, uh, he was excited when I told him when, after I got home that that's the only fish pup caught today.
1: Well, I know a smart, a really smart guide who carries waterproof markers in his boat and he'll, he'll mark up flies all day long. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not smart enough to do that, uh, but the, some people do it and it seems to work.
0: That's a good tip. That's a good tip. There's lots of little good tips like that that I found from uh, watching lots of your videos and things like that. And, uh, you know, before we go much further, I do want to say thank you because, you know, a lot of the videos that you put out on the Orbis, you know, Fly fishing school and stuff like that were were really ways that I learned a ton more in a very short period of time about fishing nymphs, fishing streamers, and just kind of just an overall general education on fly fishing when I was more of a novice. um, Mm -hmm. And and I read someplace that you really enjoy teaching novices, maybe more than experienced. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I don't know if that's a true statement.
1: Well, I don't know how much I have to offer to an experienced angler. I mean, if somebody's done a lot of fishing, what what are they going to learn from me? Um, whereas novices, it's, it's so gratifying because everything is new to them, and 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 they absorb things like a sponge, and they appreciate uh, everything you give them. So you know, it's just a matter of what you get what you get back out of it, and you get a lot of pleasure from someone who uh, you know learn something from one of your tips. So.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you, like you said, the, the learning curve is much steeper maybe in the beginning. Cause it's just uh, mm-hmm. yeah. so much more. Yeah. There's
1: so much. There's so much.
0: But you are someone that I perceive as still really values learning themselves, right? I, I mean, you're certainly not a novice, but you still enjoy learning and going new places and catching new fish. And I would say that you're, a, a consummate, you know, learner in the fly fishing space. What is something that you've done to kind of maintain that kind of, I don't know, novice perspective? You know, to to get to a place where you are always kind of, I don't know, everything.
1: Well, that that's really what fly fishing is all about. If you you know, if you stop learning, um it, it ceases to me. It would cease to be fun. I mean, I have a trout stream in my backyard, and I fish it almost every day during the spring, summer, and fall. And every time I got on there, I learned something new, uh, literally. And I, you know, I know the water, I know these fish, but I'm I'm always learning. And, um, you know, there's there's always something, I mean, fly, fly tying, of course, there's always something new and cool. But, you know, even in fishing, things like uh, carp fishing, or sight fishing for striped bass which I do a lot um they they can get so complex and I've I've realized that for instance carp it, every every place you find them they're different you know they're they're feeding on something different their behaviors different and um boy I've caught a lot of carp but I don't feel like I've figured them out yet and, and never will and never will and trout is. Trout are the same way,
0: oh really so do you think that's because they're in different locations like different habitats carp yeah stuff? different
1: habitats different you know different water types, different food supply um you know just like with trout I mean their their food supply changes every day right so you have to you have to learn to adjust and you you learn you learn new things every time you go out
0: yeah. A Trout would be kind of like day-to-day type thing, and then maybe carp. Are you you saying that's more generic, like, well, these carp in this area have this kind of way of doing business, and then these carp in a different area have a different way? Yeah, A whole different way?
1: You have to relearn every new body of water when you find some carp. You really have to relearn it and figure out the flies and their, their pattern of movements and how close you can get to them and
0: What's something you learned recently um fly fishing either in your backstream or a trip you took for a different species or something like that where you really learned something new that you were said you know yep i'm still learning i'm still i'm still learning hmm
1: god i you know it's it's hard to it's hard to sort that out cuz i learn something new every time i every time i go out hmm 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 there's a, a a lake near me a big lake that uh, I still haven't figured the carp out um and I can't I can't crack the code and it's going to drive me crazy and yeah. they're they're giant they're giant and they're in clear water and uh um I I can't seem to regularly catch those fish
0: okay so it's more of once in a while where you, you can get out there and hook up yeah are there other species of fish that you're um, interested? in? Let's say if you could, if you couldn't go for trout, Tom, if you if you had to pick one species and it wasn't trout, you know, it wasn't trout, what would you, what would be that species that you would go after?
1: It would probably uh, be bonefish um, for me. Bonefish or carp only because I I really enjoy sight fishing. I really enjoy the visual aspect and the hunting and the stalking aspect of it. And and bonefish are the kind of the ultimate shallow water fish that you stalk. Um, And carp are the the same way. You know, when you find carp feeding in shallow, clear water, and you can see their their body language and their movement. So anything, really anything sight fishing. uh, I do a lot of striped bass fishing on the Atlantic coast in shallow water. We have some... uh, very clear water, sand flats, uh, where we chase striped bass, and so you know anything really that's sight fishing. I mean, this past this past summer, I spent some time uh, fishing for gar, and uh, you know, gar's a weird primitive fish, <laughs> yeah, and and but but they they cruise near the surface. So again, it's it's sight fishing. You know, you're you're spotting a fish, you're throwing to it, you're you're reading the fish's body language and figuring them out. So, really, anything, even sun, you know, sunfish on a dock where you can stand above them and see their reactions. Anything that has to do with sight fishing uh, intrigues me.
0: Is that something you seek out in trout fishing too? Uh, sight fishing, if I
1: language? can, yeah, if I can. Right. I mean, you I mean you know, there there's two there's there's two of my favorite parts of trout fishing one would be uh dry fly fishing obviously during a hatch, but the other time is uh sight nymphing you know without an indicator without without any kind of drop or anything just a single nymph to a fish in shallow clear water that you can see um both of those things are kind of the to me the ultimate in trout fishing
0: yeah i i really got um excited about that type of fishing when I was in Colorado and mm-hmm. fishing on yeah. South Platte and a lot of those waters. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it's great sight fishing, but it's frustrating, uh, cause there's lots of big fish. And I think what's so cool is, you know, I, I, it took me a while to figure this out, but, um, you know, fishing with an indicator is typically the way that I, that I nymph mm-hmm. and, um, you know, starting to to watch the fish take the fly before the indicator. You yeah. You know, like that. Yeah. That is exciting for me. It's almost as exciting as a dry fly eat because
1: it is. It is in their natural
0: yeah. environment. They're like underwater, right. moving around. Because it's ind- all
1: visual. It's all visual, and you're reading the body language of the fish. You don't need an indicator in that case because yeah, you, you, like you said, you're gonna you're gonna see the fish move for the fly before the indicator moves.
0: Do you, I mean, what's your thoughts on it? I know like tight lining has become very popular. And uh-huh. when I was yeah. a kid, there was, I mean, I'm sure it existed, but it was certainly less well-known or certainly less well-known to me. Do you approach nymphing differently now that that those kind of techniques, I mean, I, are, I they do. Been, are they new to you or have you seen this and you've been like, yeah, I'd been down this road and I'm not
1: interested? Well, tight lining, you know, tight line, you know, high high sticking has been around for a long time. That's weird. what
0: I call it when I yeah. was yeah
1: yeah. I mean, high sticking it has been it has been big, particularly in Colorado for a long time with the nymph. But the um, the Euro style, the competition style, took it um, took it about five steps further with more refined tackle um, and you know different flies and different rigs and uh, you know. Um, it just they they took it to a very sophisticated degree and you know that's one of the cool things about fly fishing is there's here's a new type of fishing with a you know different rod different line leader and everything and i i i do it i i tight line euro nymph uh, a little bit but i don't i don't really like it as much as i like other types of fishing i prefer. Dry dropper fishing—that's um, my my favorite way to fish when there's nothing hatching. But I've learned a lot from Euro nymphing and from you know studying their techniques in my dry dropper fishing. I've learned you know that that I need a I don't want a tapered leader between my dry fly or my indicator and. And the flies, I want you know a a, a thin, a very thin, longer tippet.
0: Yeah, um, I've noticed that know, as well because it sinks.
1: It sinks better. Um, so, you know, we learn a lot from these new things. Two handed, two handed casting. Uh, you know, I'm still, I'm still. Uh, learning that but now with single-handed rod i i use a lot of two-handed techniques i use a double spay and and snap tee um occasionally uh when i you know when i don't have any back cast room fish in a streamer or a wet fly so you can apply you can apply these um these new things these new new methods uh to more conventional fishing
0: Yeah. Or just your game. You know, you can say, this is my way for open. This is the way that I want to do it. Right. This is the way I fish. And these are the types of streams that i typically fish. And some of these, the other thing is some of these techniques like you're talking about are kind of specific, you know, they're not specific in that they can't be applied other places, but they were kind of, they're born into these areas and that's why they fish. Like I had talked to Simon Gosworth about spay casting and he was saying, you know, in Scotland, and stuff, the way the rivers are, and there's no room to back cast and so that's that's where they started doing all that stuff, yeah, and, yeah, but he also said, like you were saying, hey man, if you're if you got just a nine foot five weight trout you know fishing rig, it's useful to be able to you know beyond a roll cast to really move line out in in some of the waters and I definitely there's lots of big waters, big rivers where there ain't, there ain't much room to backcast, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, when not, when I go trout fishing, I want to be able to switch from a dry to a NIV to a streamer uh, at will. And I don't want to carry two rods cause that's a pain in the butt. Um, so <laughs> did you, you experiment
0: know, I, with that? Two rods? How long did it take you to, to not, 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 very, often, not
1: very often? <laughs> not very I often.
0: did it once and I'm like, I don't know if this is for yeah. me. I don't like yeah, it.
1: So I want to, you know, I want to be versatile and, and you know, people who, people who just fish one style, uh, I th- I just think they're missing a lot of fun and they're missing a lot of opportunities and they're missing an ability uh ability to learn uh new things that they can apply. Yeah. So
0: I want to go back to the the bonefish real quick because mm-hmm. I mean uh it sounds like that's a special species for you. Can you, yeah. do you remember a time um a, a special memory or like a fish that you caught a bonefish that was you know particularly memorable for you?
1: Not a not a single fish, but um, I just remember a, a series of days that I had with a good friend. We were on an, an island in the Bahamas. We were uh, not with a guide. We didn't have a boat. We were wade fishing, just exploring and finding new places. And we just had some wonderful, just wonderful fishing. We fished from dawn to dusk. Uh, we caught a bunch of kudas. We took some paddle boards and to use to cross channels and things like that, and it was just a you know doing it all yourself, stalking the fish from dawn to dusk. Um, It was it was just a great trip.
0: When was that? Was that a long time ago or recent?
1: I mean, maybe six or seven years ago.
0: And do you prefer that type of fishing—kind of do it yourself or explore on your own? Or I mean, I do.
1: I do, yeah. I I really don't. Um, I don't like somebody looking over my shoulder and telling me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I have a lot of friends that are guides. Sure, and, I, and we I can
0: respect to, them, Tom. We can respect. Oh, and I love I love to <laughs> push
1: with guides, and I have learned so much with guides. Right, uh, I I really have learned a ton, but um, I'm I'm not really comfortable uh, unless unless nobody's looking at me and I'm doing it all myself. I'm spotting the fish, I'm making the cast, I'm picking the fly, I'm changing my tippet, I'm doing it all myself, just the way I am. (laughs)
0: That's cool. In saltwater, then, uh, what have you learned about sight fishing while wading, or maybe paddle boards or things like that? What are some tips or things that you've learned in that arena, because... And I've talked to other people on the show about this, but, you know, I, typically in my mind, I think of a skiff and a boat and it's almost always a team sport in the imagination yeah. of saltwater fishing. Right. Um, yeah. So if you're going to do it solo, even with a buddy, but you're, you know, you're not going to, most guys are going to have a boat, I would think. But what what's kind of been some lessons learned in that arena? Because I'm fascinated with the concept of. DIY saltwater.
1: Well, you can't, you can't do it for a lot of things. For instance, tarpon, you know, if you're going to fish for tarpon, you really need a boat. Uh, I mean, there are places you can catch tarpon from shore waiting, but you really need a boat and you really need a guide for, for tarpon, but bone fishing, if you can get to the flats, you know, some, some places you needed a boat to, to get to certain flats uh, because they're, you know, isolated from the mainland and you have to swim to get to them. But, um, one of the one of the I think the biggest problems that a trout angler has when fishing in salt water site fishing is not so much spotting the fish. You'll figure that out in a day or so. Um, it's the fact that the boat's moving, the fish is always moving. there's wind, there's tide. There's currents, and with trout fishing, you know you could, you got a fish rising. You just stand there and, and you know make a cast, make another cast, make another cast, work on the fish. Um, in salt water, everything's moving, and you got one shot. And I find that I find that um, I I do better when I'm out of the boat waiting because the boat isn't moving and. And, you know, when I, I so let's say I'm walking slowly, you know, looking for fish, then I stop. And when I stop, I can see that movement. I can see those, I can see those fish moving. Whereas, um, from a moving boat, when the guide is poling, I, I get disoriented. You know, I look at stuff on the bottom that might be a fish and I can't tell if it's moving or not. I'm just not good enough. Uh, but when I, when I've got my feet planted on the ground, Uh, I can see that movement.
0: Well, you could take your time. You can, I'm not ready to move yet. I want to look a little more. I want to. Yeah, you can take your time.
1: You don't, there's no pressure of uh, somebody, you know, looking over your shoulder. So
0: I'm similar in that. And I I haven't gone saltwater fly fishing yet. I put a big yet on the end of that. But I find I'm that way with fishing for trout uh, from a drift boat. So. I really yeah. prefer wading and I don't... So do I. I. I love drift boats. I love them for different reasons. I love them because typically I'm with my brother and my dad or or people that I care about and I want to spend time with. So it's more kind of a social thing, you know, or at least partially social. But I love to use the boat as a taxi and I, I, I just get so frustrated when I'm like, that's good water and yeah. I'm not good enough to like, I know that that was the perfect... Drift, and that was it. That was that was good enough to catch whatever fish was in there. And I'm like, I know there's fish in there. I just need a couple more. I needed a couple more reps in that water. So I, I, that's what. Yeah. That's my kind of hang up with
1: yeah boat stuff. But I, I love I do like. I do like. Boat. You know, if if the streamer bites on, if the fish are on streamers, I do enjoy fishing for a boat because you got to cover a lot of water. That's um, true. You you know you're you're only gonna find that one fish out of ten that's gonna eat a streamer in a pool. And you have to cover a lot of water. And it. I find streamer fishing from a boat is really, really exciting.
0: Have you ever had a day where it wasn't 1 in 10 or it was at least closer to like a normal kind of numbers day for streamers <laughs> where where it's like, you know, for me, I, I fish streamers not as often as I would like, but, you know, it's, it's two and three fish days when I go out with a streamer. And I have to commit. Yeah. I have to say sometimes I'll even leave my fly box at home. I'll be like... I'm only doing the fly, the streamer box because I'm going to really try to to learn streamers today.
1: Yeah, I had a day on the Upper Colorado uh this fall with a uh, with a guide friend of mine another a a, a friend and then a guide friend and we fished the Upper Colorado and I put one streamer on in the morning. It was 70 degrees when we started and it didn't look like it was going to be a really good day. And I put one streamer on and fished it just with uh, you know a few twitches and pauses um and had a really great day i never took that fly off i never tied a knot the whole day i just <laughs> kept that one fly on and it was pretty it was pretty constant um yeah. you know constant enough to so i didn't feel like what fly flies. was it it was it was a fly that a friend of mine developed called the changer bugger and changer it's basically Jason, basically a woolly bugger with a, a bunch of shanks, like an ar- articulated woolly bugger.
0: Okay, cool. What kind of setup do you use? I mean, I guess it depends on the water, but that day, were you fishing a, a bigger uh, fly rod kind of
1: rig? 9.06, 9 foot 6 weight.
0: Okay. I want to change topics a little bit, and, and I want to ask you a little bit about your books and your writing and, and some mm-hmm. of the creative work that sure. you've done. Would yeah. that be okay? Mm -hmm, Uh, So my wife got me this book for Christmas. I'm reading it. I'm really enjoying it. It's prospecting for trout Mm -hmm. and you know, I've written like 20 books, Tom. And I wonder, I, I talk to a lot of folks and I engage with a lot of folks in the fly fishing community that, you know, maybe don't have the experience that you have. Certainly I'm one of those people. And, um, but they still have lots of knowledge. They have lots of things to put out there. And, yeah, um, yeah. And I see some people a little more discouraged about kind of, well, I haven't been around the block enough or, you know, cause maybe they are, they're a guide, let's say, and they're fishing with other guides that have been doing it longer than them or something. Mm-hmm. So it's not everybody, but some people seem less inclined to put out information or to kind of share, you know, tips or something. Cause it seems obvious or, um, I wonder if there was ever a time when you're in your writing or in your career, when you were like, who am I, who am I to, to put this book out or who, who's going to read this or listen to me? Cause I'm, I'm just Tom Rosenbauer and nobody even knows who I am or, or that type of thing.
1: Jason, it happens about every four or five times when I go out and you can ask my wife, I'll come home and I'll say, Jesus. How can I be, you know, how can I be <laughs> writing this stuff and doing podcasts? I can't even catch a fish. You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm totally clueless. And uh, yeah, I I feel that way a lot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's certainly something that I deal with.
1: Yeah, no, and uh, you know, and then I'll and then I'll go and and look at uh, emails from my podcast, and I'll see people that said, "Oh, thanks for giving me this tip; it helped me catch a fish," and then I'll get my confidence back. And so, but yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, we all have those insecurities, right? Because sure. if it if we if we always went out and always had a successful day, it wouldn't be very much fun, and we'd probably do something else.
0: I think that's true. I think when you write a book, it seems like more formal, like, okay, I'm really putting my knowledge out there. And I'm wondering if there was that kind of like writer's block or any, anything that kind of, you know, interrupted the process of your creative work where it was like, I mean, when you had those days, was it like, oh man, I, you know, I'm having a hard time getting my writing together today or... Or- yeah sometimes it,
1: sometimes it is but you know you have to go back to you have to go back to th- you thinking about those those people who um, who are interested in what you have to share with them you have to think of those people. Um, you know one of the one of the greatest pieces of advice I ever got from writing uh, there was a there was a writer named um, Robert F. Jones who was a good friend lived in this area and he wrote for sports illustrated for many, many years. And, um, and Bob was a, Bob was a a close friend and a a mentor in my writing. And he told me once, and this is, this, this is not original to him, but it's a great piece of advice. Don't write for your critics. Don't ever think of the, the experts or the people that know more than you do. Um, write for people who are gonna embrace and are gonna value the knowledge that you're giving them and you just gotta you gotta put those critics out of your head and you know the, the worst thing that you can do is uh, is go and read YouTube comments <laughs>
0: Yeah. Because I'm sure you still deal with that now a little bit. I mean, cause you got the podcast and you're still putting out works and articles and things like that. And yeah, I don't yeah. know. I guess it never goes away. That's something that no, it
1: is- never, goes away. never <laughs> goes away.
0: Well, that's good to hear. Um, you just
1: have to kind of put your head down and say, you know, people are going to be interested in this and they're going to learn something from it. And I'm writing for those people.
0: Was there a, is the is the writing process something that you enjoy? Is that part of your fly fishing career that is special for you, or is that something that is tertiary? Or is that you know how how much of that do you look forward to writing your next book or or things like that?
1: Most of the time, it's real work uh, for me. Uh, the, you know, I I know people that writers who love to write and sit down and write. Um, I'd usually rather be doing something else, but it's, you know, the, the, the fly fishing uh, world is is a hard place to make a living, as as you know, and it, it's a way that I've been able to you know, supplement supplement my income. You don't make you don't make that much writing books, but you make a little bit, and um, it's something that. I realized that I could do and do a pretty good job of and it's it's gratifying when people like yourself say, Oh, I learned you know, I learned a lot from this book. But the the actual process is I don't think it's very much fun. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> right. you know, some days it is. Some days it flows, you know, it's like okay. uh, some days well, it fair. flows and and But I'm you're not really gonna not, write any
0: yeah. you're not gonna write any novels or you're not interested in fiction or, or things like that.
1: No, you know the 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 only things that I will write um, are um, things that I know people are going to want to read and are going to buy. You know, I've never I've never produced a book of essays because I don't think people want to read. I mean, I, I have—I actually have done a couple picture uh, uh, coffee table books, and I wrote essays for them, and it was really fun because it was different. But well, there you go. You, you know. Uh,
0: okay, I understand. Well, let's talk about um, let's talk a little bit about uh, something that I learned from one of your books, and that is, you know, something that when I read it, I was like, that's fairly obvious, but I hadn't thought about it too much. And that is water richness. And, mm-hmm. the, and I'd like to kind of go into, um, you know, I know you wrote a book also about fishing small streams, but I'd like to get into kind of your approach to fishing new water and how you go mm-hmm. about. Cause like I had honestly, before we talked, you know, before the show, I, I had the kind of a misperception that Well, Tom's out with Orvis, you know, every other month on trips and with guides and he's kind of, but like you had told me that you really prefer kind of fishing by yourself and being alone and, or, or figuring things out on your own.
1: Fishing uh, by myself or fishing with, you know, one friend. Right. Um, Yeah.
0: So can you talk a little bit about when you go someplace with your one friend or by yourself or or something, Mm -hmm. how do you approach new water? and how you know kind of from the planning aspect and we'll stick to maybe rivers and trout if that's
1: cool okay yeah um, yeah
0: how do you approach like a new stream and um in the planning and then you know the day of and then just moving forward throughout the day um you know yeah and, and yeah you know, well, water richness can kind of play into that
1: yeah well first i'll do a little research um you know, I, there's a, a lot of the exploring that I do is just small streams here in Vermont. I mean, we have lots and lots of little tiny mountain streams. And uh, I, I love exploring new ones just to see what's in there, to see what, what species and how big they are. And, you know, they're all wild. Um, but if I'm going to a new river somewhere, I'm driving a few hours. Um, first, I'll do some research online. And see if there's anything out there about the river, and and look at pictures of it, and then uh, usually look at it. You look at it on on a topo map and and Google Earth. If it's you know if it's big enough that I can see something in Google Earth, and see what kind of character the river has. You know if it's got just if it's all slow slow water um, slow just kind of looks like slow deep water I probably won't fish it <laughs> because that kind of water is tough unless you know it right you, yeah. you want to look for some riffles you want to look awesome. for some riffles and pools where you have some structure and uh, so I'll, I'll do a little research first and then I think one of the most valuable things that uh, that people do when they're investigating a new stream yeah. is to Get to an area that looks good, driving or hiking, whatever, and just sit down on the bank and watch for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour. Um, you know, look for, look for bugs in the air. Maybe turn over a couple rocks, see how much life there is in the river and what kind of stuff is in there. But you know, there's so many times when I've when I've sat down on the bank, and um, right where I was going to get in the water, a fish rose. I said, "Oh, glad I didn't. Glad I didn't uh, just you know barrel my way into the river. I think I'm going to sneak downstream along the bank and you know come up and, and try to catch this fish that's rising." So I, I think that's really valuable. And yeah, getting an idea of the richness of a river. Um, the, you know, there's there's a whole spectrum of of the productivity of a stream, anywhere from uh, almost completely sterile. And I'm thinking, you know, real headwater streams, first order streams that have wild brookies or maybe cutthroats, because um, they're the they're the only species that can live in some of these really sterile environments. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have things like spring creeks and tailwaters that are just chock full of food all day long. Scuds and, and sow bugs and midges and mayflies and caddisflies and stoneflies. Um, and you, you do need to treat those kind of streams differently. Um, And you can get an idea of the richness of the water. You know, is it crystal clear or does it have a little color to it? Little maybe grayish or greenish tinge. Is there any aquatic vegetation in it? You know, if there's aquatic vegetation, it's probably going to be a little richer. Is it, is it a tailwater? Most tailwaters are quite a bit richer than, than freestone streams.
0: So freestones in general are less rich. Is that kind of
1: most of the time? Yeah. Unless they run through limestone. Limestone bedrock—they're—they're they're not going to be as as rich as a tailwater or a spring creek.
0: And the crystal um, clear kind of water—that's also kind of like a less rich type of thing.
1: Often, often it is, yeah. Often yeah. it is. Now, uh, you know, tannic tannic water where it looks like tea, yeah. Those are often uh, acidic and 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 not very rich, fairly infertile. And so when, when you encounter that kind of stream that's not very rich you turn over some rocks and you know maybe you see a couple of mayflies or catasflies but you don't see a lot of stuff crawling around the bottom those fish are going to be pretty easy and they're going be they're gonna jump on anything that looks remotely edible. You can probably get away with a bigger fly um, you know they might be spooky but uh, but uh, they're going to be, they're, and they're going to move for a fly, you know. They're going to move, I mean, brook trout in a small stream will move from one side of a little tiny pool to the other to grab a dry fly because they don't know when their next meal's coming down the creek. Um, and, as opposed to, you know, if I if I go to this new stream and it's got watercress and it's, it's uh, you know, kind of slow moving and, you know, I stick my hand in the water and grab a bunch of weed, and there's all kind of scuds and, and uh, betas nymphs and midges in it. Those fish are going to be tough because they got a lot of food and they're not going to they may not even feed all the time. You know, they they can feed when food is abundant and they could just kick back and relax uh, when food is not abundant. And when they kick back and relax, they're often a lot more alert. So you can't get as close to them. Uh, so you need to be a lot. You need to have to take a lot more care in those richer waters. And usually, the richer waters have more fishing pressure, right? Because there's more fish. There's there's a higher trout density. And you know, with the internet and everything else, people are not stupid. They know where they know where the better streams are. There's very few hidden hidden gems that are really well, We're going to talk productive. about that
0: later. We're going to talk about
1: Yeah, but I mean, it, you know, there are there are many streams that are yeah. that are chock full of 18-inch yeah. brown trout that um that are not uh, that are unknown. <laughs> sure. So, yeah. There's lots of streams with 6-inch brook trout that nobody bothers with and nobody knows about.
0: Well, I think it's interesting that you break it up into like a rich watershed or a rich river versus a not rich because I've definitely heard of you know, freestone versus tailwater and, and, yeah. but I think it's different to, to think of it rich versus not. And some of the things that, that you've mentioned and, and that I've read in the book so far is also, you know, just the, the different conditions of the water. So beyond the tailwater stuff, but if you just look at the river, you know, so you, let's make an assumption that most tailwaters are mostly rich, but then mm-hmm. if you go yeah. to the other side in a freestone, There could be different, this is what's fascinating to me and what I'm really enjoying about the book and this conversation is there's different kind of levels of richness in these freestone rivers. And and that's what's cool to me is being able to look at a freestone and be like, okay, this is more or less rich and how I can approach it differently than I might on a a less rich river. Um, Some of the things that you mentioned
1: and there's there's usually a continuum, Jason. In the headwaters, um, the headwaters are going to be more sterile, or going to be less rich. And as you get further downstream, there's going to be more nutrients come in the water. It's not just groundwater. It's going to be more nutrients from runoff, and uh, the water is going to be a little warmer. And generally, you know, some of these headwaters are so cold that not many, not many fish and not many insects can survive as you as you go downstream and get more into the valley where things slow down and get wider um there's gonna be more food, for instance the battenkill, which is our you know our our pretty famous river um that's not too far from my house you know twenty minute drive um the lower river also has more fishing pressure, but the lower river it has more more food um The fish are spookier and and they're a little pickier. And, you know, if I go to the bat and kill and I can't catch anything because there's, you know, nothing rising or Tom's getting skunked. Oh, yeah, I'm getting skunked. So I'll go (laughs) up into I'll go way up into the headwaters where it's tiny. And I know I can catch a pile of fish up there because because they're hungry. Yeah, they're hungry. They don't get a lot of food. They don't see a lot of different things to eat, and, um, of course, there's less fishing pressure there, too, because people worry they're going to get their fly caught in the trees in these little brushy streams.
0: Well, I'm going to read this from the book, if that's okay. This is from uh, Prospecting for Trout.
1: Now, I wrote this a long time ago. That's fine, fine, Tom. Don't don't worry. I (laughs) probably learned a lot since I wrote it.
0: Well, I was going to ask you that, too, Is you know, how, how much has changed and how much, but... yeah. Remember I said I was going to give you some great excuses for getting skunked? And we've already kind of been talking about this, but... uh, Remember I said I was going to give you some great excuses for getting skunked? Here's one that relates to the richness of a trout stream. In fertile rivers, trout appear to feed in spurts, with periods in between when they seem uninterested in any food and can't be tempted with any fly. And so, my question about that, and I guess... Covered it a little bit but I thought you could maybe go Into it a little bit deeper Is You know When you are in that um, Stream And the fish are not biting Or you're like The skunk is coming on You mentioned Uh you'd go up To the headwaters But let's say You're on this new river Right So you've gone to someplace new You don't maybe know Like How do you now Move upstream Like what goes through You know You've been fishing for a couple hours You're on new water Maybe yeah. you caught a fish, maybe you haven't, but it's just not—you're not really connecting. Is that just part of the the process? And this is kind of day one, so this should be expected. Or what are some things that you do to make? What are some changes that you make, or some things that you think about to kind of on a new stream expedite, kind of bringing fish into the
1: net? Well, if the you know if the water temperature is decent, if it's like fifty to sixty five. I know that they the fish will eat. They may not be actively feeding, but they'll eat they'll eat something if it if it's in their face and um you know, it looks like it's not gonna get away.
0: So less than fifty you is when what's a temperature where you're like uh eh, it's
1: <sighs> you know, if it's less than forty five it's like yeah. Yeah. They're not they're not they're feeding. not super interested. Uh, Okay. So there's a number of things you can do. One is you can wait them out, and maybe uh, the water temperature will increase. You know, if you're in the morning, the water temperature goes up a couple degrees. the fish might start eating, or you stay till dark. You know, um, you know. So often, if it's you know, if the water's above fifty degrees, you're probably going to see some activity right. At I like dark. this.
0: These are techniques of endurance. I like it.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, uh, but if I'm not catching anything. Um, I'll just move. I'll just find a different kind. You know, if I'm not catching anything in the riffles, I'll try a pool, or I'll just I'll just keep moving around. Um, and I'll, I'll and I'll I'm more likely to move to a new spot in a river before I change flies.
0: Really? Okay. Yeah. What will drive you to? Why is that? First of all, why is that?
1: I don't know. I think that that I can usually figure out something that fish are going to eat. I mean, yeah. it's it's generally nymph fishing, right? Nothing going on um, in a in a larger river. It's generally nymph fishing. In a small stream, yeah, it's going to be dry fly because the you know it's shallow and clear, and and the fish are gonna they're going to see the fly. But in a, in a larger river, generally going to be nymph fishing, uh, unless the water's dirty, and then I might try a streamer. But um, you know, it's generally going to be nymph fishing, and you know, fish are going to eat a nymph. I mean, take a lesson from the Euro nymphing people. Okay, um, they they don't they don't match the hatch. They they have you know that they, they, they use generic flies, and and they're they're all about getting the fly in the fish's face. And they know they can feed those fish if if they get it right in front of them. And l- look at all the flies that they use. I mean, they're so generic and.
0: They're pretty and basic. But they're they're pretty very specific. Basic. They're streamlined. They're they're yeah. weighted very specifically. Yeah. You know, it's all very- about
1: getting down. It's all yeah. about getting down to the fish. And so, you know, I feel the same way. It, it, whether you know, if I'm dry drop or indicator fishing, I think that if I'm getting down, I'm getting down, and I'm not catching anything, then maybe there's no fish there,
0: right?
1: And I, so I'm just going to go someplace else where either there's more fish or the fish are easier.
0: But Tom, this looks so fishy. This spot, there's got to be fish in this spot. There's got to be fish I know. here.
1: I know. <laughs> I know. Well, if, you know, if there's a, if there's any sign of fish, um, you know, I'll I'll keep at it. If there's occasional rise or something, you know, I'll keep at it. But you know, if I don't, I'm nymphing a run and I don't catch anything. It's weird. It, water can look so good. And be totally devoid of fish and for whatever reason. You know Sure,
0: yeah. Or something that I've picked up on, which I didn't it's kind of like if A equals B and B equals C, then A also equals C is I learned from sight fishing that even if there are fish there, they may not be feeding. And if I'll go up, you know, even a hundred yards, yeah, I'll find a fish that I can see that is feeding, and that's been a big big breakthrough in my sight fishing yeah you know game or whatever you want to call it and then i started thinking about well wait a minute if i'm if i can't sight fish and there's fishy water and i'm like man i know there's fish in there well maybe those fish also are not feeding and i need to go to a different place where i also cannot see fish but maybe they're they're feeding in this area um I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but
1: well, the reason the reason they're not feeding at all, like e- if the water temperature is good and you're getting down to the fish and they're not eating, they're probably spooked. And you might have spooked them, but you know, fish won't feed f- f- won't feed for anywhere from 10 minutes to hours if they're if they're really spooked and 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 maybe they were in the shallow water, and you waded in. You pushed them into deeper into the pool, and so they're just sitting there. They know you're there, and they're spooked. Or maybe somebody, maybe somebody else. There was we there. go, Tom. Maybe someone else spooked It wasn't
0: Jason. It was. <laughs>
1: or yeah, or maybe there were yeah. some kids. You know, maybe there were some kids swimming in there right. half an hour ago. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that if they if they just have lockjaw, either the water's cold or we've spooked them. Okay. And so finding a f- fresh water, maybe maybe a little bit faster water where you can get closer to the fish without spooking them. Um, yeah. Because, you you know, if fish are less spooky in riffles. They feel more secure and they don't see you as well. Is that
0: also true that, like, then they can't, they have less of a look at the fly, like in slow
1: water, they have yeah. more time to, yeah.
0: oh, it doesn't quite look like right. it. But in a riffle, yeah. they're like, I better get it. And,
1: and that's why when when to uh, you know as I said when I'm fishing new water I'm always going to look for some kind of riffle some kind of faster water because that's where I'm going to start yeah because I can at least figure out if there's any fish in there at all because it's easier
0: right you might not even be the biggest fish but at least you know like okay there's some fish
1: yeah and then and then I can uh you know look at the the deeper slower pools. and maybe not fish them until there's a hatch later in the day or something like that.
0: Yeah. Well, going back to getting skunked, I think for me, I really try to go to the place where I think I'll catch a fish as Mm -hmm. soon as possible because that just kind of builds my confidence and like,
1: right. Yeah, absolutely.
0: um, All right. Anything else that you want to talk about or bring up with respect to, to fishing new water uh, before we move on or, or the richness of a stream?
1: No, I don't think so. I think the important thing is to move around a lot. All right. Not well, just stand Not just stand in one spot. The longer you stand in one spot, the more chance you have a spook in those fish.
0: That works for me, because I love wading, wading the river, yeah. uh, moving yeah. around. Um, I want to ask you a couple questions um, that are kind of, you know, I look at great instructors. So, in my previous life I was in the Air Force and we did instructing and airplanes and things like that. And so I don't have as much experience, you know, I've never been a guide or anything like that, but I look at great instructors as humble, approachable, and credible. And Mm -hmm. I see those characteristics in you and especially the credibility. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I thought that I would ask you some questions about some topics that I don't want to say they're hot topics, but maybe there's a lot of opinions on these topics Mm -hmm. and, okay. So, I thought I would ask you what your thoughts are on some of those things if you don't mind okay sure um, the first one is spot burning uh, mm-hmm. I see so many contrarian opinions on this, and I wonder what your thoughts are. Is there a line that you wouldn't cross or or is there something that you wouldn't do, or is it the medium that it's presented in? and the reason I ask or the reason I'm curious mostly is because you know I see small streams being named and various books and articles they're talking about this stuff and then it seems like some people are you know if someone else brings it up it is spot burning or it's not and i just wonder you know what your opinion is on spot burning and where what how much discretion that you give to certain streams or areas or things like that
1: well i like to think that i'm pretty careful about naming Rivers, um, you know, if it's if I'm fishing the, the Missouri River, the Madison River, the Bighorn, there's no secrets there. There's one hundred and fifty drift boats in the water.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: And it's all over the Internet. So, you know, I, I don't I don't have a problem with that. And, and I'll mention that, you know, I talked about the uh, Upper Colorado River uh, previously. That's not a secret yeah uh lots of guides on it lots of lots of anglers on it uh, but I think that as as we get um, into the smaller more sensitive streams by sensitive I mean just that the you know the trout population might not be might not be huge and you might have to go through some effort to find them uh, i I don't believe in naming those streams I was reading a magazine this morning. Um one of the fly fishing magazines, and it has you know kind of a little short i won't mention the name of the magazine, but it has little short articles about streams in various places, and a lot of them that were mentioned were smaller rivers, and they you know gave go to this bridge, turn right, go up this road, and you know it's to to me it's it's helpful but uh <laughs> if if, if, if yeah. i were if I were somebody that fished that little stream in Colorado that has those big brown trout yeah. i don't think i don't think I'd like it for somebody to put it in a magazine, and I certainly wouldn't do it myself, sure, you know, I don't really write where to stuff, yeah. I you know people ask me to write, you know, somebody asked me to write something about trout streams of Vermont and I said no nah, I don't really want to do that um, <laughs> yeah because it's boring for one thing but um, just but uh, but I think I think we need to use discretion on on naming uh, naming rivers and I think people are for the most part pretty good about it I, I don't see a lot of bot burning of places that are that are kind of small and sensitive. Do you think it's
0: the size of the river or the popularity or when does it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think it,
1: I think it's, I think it's the popularity. I mean, there are, there are probably places on the Missouri river that don't get as much fishing pressure that, um,
0: right. Cause that could be spot burning too, right? You could, yeah, you could say, yeah, go to the Missouri river and go here to this bridge. And like you said, yeah. and that's kind of spot yeah. burning. If I live in the Missouri river and I yeah, fish there, like I don't want people telling everyone about my cool spot that I fish.
1: Right. And I wouldn't tell I them totally exactly where, that. you know, let's say I went way downstream from where people usually fish and found some good fishing there. Well, I wouldn't tell people about that, but if I'm fishing at Craig, Montana, you know, I'm fishing at Craig where all the drip boats go in, all the fly shops are. I don't have any problem with mentioning that.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um all right, let's talk about uh fish handling and catch and release specifically and mm-hmm. kind of your opinions on that and conservation. Um I know we talked a little bit about the show before the show about this and uh just your thoughts on catch and release. I am, you know, mostly catch and release, but I grew yep. up taking some trout and I'm certainly going to teach my kid how to got a fish one day within, you know, but I just wonder what your opinions are on that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a, I have something that I, that I use in a, a statement that I use in a lot of my presentations. It kind of pisses people off. Um, catch and release does not make you a conservationist. Uh, you know, I hear people say, Oh, I, I release all my fish because I want my grandchildren to be able to catch trout. Well, that's, that's total. Bull Uh, Catch and release is a management tool, and yes, it makes fishing better next year or next week or in two weeks, Uh, but it it doesn't do anything to preserve a trout population. Um, It takes very few spawning pairs of trout to repopulate an entire river system. Uh, there's a lot of overlap in spawning. There's a lot of overlap in spawning beds. Um, you know, uh, we can you can bring back a stream to complete health as long as the habitat is there very quickly. Um, and people are never going to catch all the fish, right? They're never going to catch them all. There's always going to be some fish left uh, that, that will spawn and reproduce. So catch lives. every... Yeah. So catch catch and release is great for, um, you know, catch and release areas are generally better fishing because the fish are returned to the water and we should, you know, we should respect the fish and release them carefully. Um, there is some mortality involved in, in, even in releasing fish carefully, some of them die, but most of them, most of them survive probably over 90% of them survive. Um, but again it's it's a management tool. It's selfish. It it's really it's really selfish. And one of the what, things what's that,
0: selfish? Catch and release is selfish or the myth. Yeah,
1: it's selfish because we're just we're just trying to make the fishing better for next week. Okay. For us. Or for you know, for somebody else. But it's So not, would it be less not,
0: selfish to keep the fish then? I don't
1: know. you know what i'm going to read you a quote i have a quote here i want to hear it this is this quote is from the great jim harrison the late great jim harrison who is no nobody's read jim harrison he he was one of the the i think the finest uh writers that we had in this country and this is a quote from a uh i think it was a Book that was published after his death a couple of years ago. So here's the quote Probably about 99% of the fish I've caught in my adult life were released. I don't say released unharmed, as a creature's struggle for life is indubitably harmed by it. We should avoid a Mandarin feeling of virtue in this matter. Eating some wild trout now and then will serve to remind you that they are not toys put in the river for the exercise of your expensive equipment. <laughs> Nobody, I love nobody's it. nobody's I, better than Jim Harrison. I, that I love kind
0: of that; thing. it's so funny. Yeah,
1: um, and, and you know that's what it's all about. And you know, one of the things, Jason, that really upsets me is when I see people. Devoting their time and energy to fighting over uh, regulations, whether it's no, whether it's whether it's pushing for no kill or pushing for allowing more fish to be harvested. Either way, um, as humans in today's world, uh, we only have so much time and energy, right? It's a busy world. We only have so much time and energy. And when people fight and and have a crusade over fishing regulations, that's time that they could have been spending uh, pushing for better habitat, uh, you know, uh, demonstrating for using less pesticides and herbicides uh, near our streams. Uh, you know, I mean, Trout, Un- Trout Unlimited is great is great. Certain trial limited chapters get really hung up on, on uh, regulations. But for the most part if, at the national level, they concentrate on habitat. They concentrate on preserving the habitat for fish. If you've got good habitat, it doesn't matter what kind of friggin' regulations you have. Um, and so it, it just bothers me that, that people, people uh, get so passionate about regulations either way. Because it's unimportant. It's really, in the grand scheme of things, it's really unimportant. Two
0: th- two observations on that, Tom. First, the habitat piece, which to me, to me, now we're talking about conservation. You're talking about managing wildlife areas, you know, whether it be hunting yeah. or fishing, yeah. those types of things, um, and things you can do to help, you know, keep streams clean and 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 those types of things. I, those are things that I try and teach my kid as well, like picking mm-hmm. up trash on the river. Yeah. yeah. Which my father, you know, he taught me how to read a trout stream, which was probably the the greatest gift he gave me in the fly fishing world when I cause we yeah. were gear fishermen when I was yeah. a kid. Mm-hmm. But I took it for granted that I knew when I started fly fishing where how to read water, how to kind mm-hmm. of um but even and so this is years and years ago, and I would not call my father a conservationist, but he was—we we we always brought stuff off the river, you know? We picked up trash and things. Yeah, yeah. Mostly because I think he just enjoyed being in those areas more when he felt like, you know, he was there alone and there hadn't been people everywhere and that type of thing. But he so was I think,
1: giving back. He was giving back in his own way, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And— and going up in the mountains and and things like that. And so the habitat I think is, is really, um, interesting. You bring that not interesting, but I think that's important that you bring that up. And then the other thing that, I mean, I guess I just didn't really know this. I'm not educated enough, but I didn't realize that the trout population with that good habitat is really resilient or that those spawning beds or opportunities, you know, that it, really doesn't take it sounds like it doesn't take that much to kind of i don't know populate a trout stream with trout is that what you're getting
1: yeah no i remember i remember um, a number of years ago there was a big chemical spill on the upper sacramento river i think it was like a tractor trailer that dumped a chemical in the river and killed you know i don't know 90 percent of the fish population and everybody was worried that the river would be ruined forever. And with it, within not m- that many years, the river bounced right back to where it was before. Yeah. Um. You know, as long as... as because long the as habitat the, was there. The habitat was there, yeah. Well, I mean, it was a temporary thing. It killed right. a lot of fish. But, yeah, it's... Trout are, res, Trout are very resilient. If we, if we give them clean water and cold water and we give them habitat they're incredibly resilient. I mean, they, they've evolved for hundreds of thousands of years to, uh, populate streams.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's good to hear because, you know, even now that I'm in Utah, um, you know, my fly fishing experience has changed as well. You know, when I first started out, you know, I did when I first, I had no idea about spot burning or, you know, I, I knew to keep rivers clean and stuff, but not much about conservation, as you would say, conservation Mm -hmm. and maintaining habitats. And now that it's here in my backyard, it's certainly more important to me. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I wish I could say that that wasn't true, that I've been just, it's been super important to me this forever, but that's just not the case. Like now that I'm here, uh, I think about it more because it's right Mm -hmm. here. Um, for better or worse, whatever you want to think about that. But, uh, you know, we had, I fish a tailwater around here and they had, I don't know, I guess an accident or something. They turned off the water and it was just like almost no flow. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and a bunch of fish died. Yeah. Um, And so I was wondering like, okay, well, how, how bad is that for my, my home turf? You know, like how bad it was just this one section, but, and I know that happened on the Madison river as well. I think last summer or one or two years ago, they had, they had shut off water and there was almost no water for the fish. And a bunch of people had gone out to kind of help in that area, but I guess it's good to hear like I said at the beginning, you know, your credibility is important to me in this conversation, in these topics. And that's good to know. That's good to hear. Next one, uh, or next, next thing that I wanted to bring up, and this is probably the last one before we move on is overcrowding Mm -hmm. and, um, fishing in areas, um, where pressure is increasing and, and your thoughts on how to avoid, Those situations and maybe why it's why that is or isn't a big problem in your mind.
1: Well, if you if you got got your heart set on fishing a particular river in a particular spot, then it's a problem. If you're more flexible, it's not a problem um, at all. We in this country we have vast natural resources. It's what has made this country great you go back to the 60s and 70s when um when people that we don't normally think of conservationists like Johnson and Nixon uh you know realize that that's what makes this country great our natural resources that's the most the it's the people and the natural resources you don't see that as much anymore but i'll get off the politics it's it's not really it's really history not politics right
0: that's fine that's we're we're well within the realm of those okay. are fine topics.
1: Okay, we haven't gone by the. We haven't. I, gone I just. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and as I said before, I find politics boring, anyways. But I do find history fascinating. Um, oh, anyway, in this country, we have vast natural resources and vast amount of public land. Uh, you know, although you know, in Utah, uh, you have problems with getting into certain rivers, but still, there's a lot of public land, right? There's a lot of land. Yep. And.
0: And there's easements. And, there are some easements, and yeah, there's some. Yeah. There are some landowners that are that that allow walk-in access and stuff. So
1: yeah. But in most parts of this country, particularly where we have trout, there's there's there there's ton of public land, or private land where you can get access to it. And uh, for for somebody to complain about crowding, uh, they're just lazy. They they just they just you know that if, if you want to go to Deckers on a Saturday afternoon, yeah. It's going to be crowded, but there. Even in Colorado, where you know the crowds have gotten apparently really, really bad because fly fishing during the pandemic went crazy. But there are there are places you can go to get away from people. There are places you can go where you won't see anybody. Um, And I'm just right now. I'm just talking trout, right? Um, Sure. You know, go get out of the catch and release stretch and and go downstream somewhere where you know maybe it's not maybe the habitat's not as great but there's there's still be trout there and you could discover some really cool fishing or go up into the headwaters of a stream do some walking do some exploring people are just friggin lazy
0: well the other thing that you mentioned in there you said and we're just talking trout And this comes up a lot on the show as well. And it's something that I look at my time in the outdoors and rivers and hunting and things and my time in the air force traveling around, you know, I I had in my brain, you know, Montana, Colorado, those were my experiences with trout and fly fishing. And then I joined Mm -hmm. the air force and went off. Right. Yeah. Holy smokes, man. Tom, I had so many opportunities to do so much cool stuff in the outdoors and with fly fishing. And mm-hmm. I'm realizing that now as I connect with more and more people in the fly fishing community and all these areas that they fish and like you mentioned, carp or striped bass and carp,
1: smallmouth bass, pike, pickerel, sunfish, yellow perch. I mean yeah. there's some suckers.
0: <laughs> Got a sucker for the first time out here. My son went. They nuts. fight hard.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's so many cool things you could do with a fly rod, uh, you know. And really, honestly, the only the only trout streams that are super crowded, there are two two places. One is where you can drive to and park and fish, like Deckers. That's um, true. And and the other one is places where you can put a drift boat in.
0: Also true. Those are that's a, those are two good rules of thumb.
1: If you're willing to walk or just explore a little bit, maybe drive down a dirt road, you're going to be able to find a place to fish, yeah, so i don't have I don't have any patience with people that say, you know fly fishing is getting overcrowded. Yeah, it's getting overcrowded in the the easy, popular places that you can read about on the internet. but there's plenty of room. There's plenty of room for lots more people,
0: and that's something that i I, I really think that again, having talked to a lot of people on the show that are new to fly fishing, even I I don't have a problem with more and more people kind of getting into fly fishing. I wouldn't, it's been such a a wonderful experience for me. I just don't, I can't imagine not wishing that for someone else, like to take that away for some, like, Oh no. Well, some, I had somebody on the show one time, it was perfect. He said, everybody wants to be the last person to start fly fishing. (laughs) And it's just not, it's not fair. It's not true. It's just never going to happen. So I really think it's better to focus on like what you're saying, exploring new water and teaching people, you know, about conservation, about taking care of fish and the the habitats and things like that, that are really going to help in the long run.
1: And, you know, I got a question for you. I I, I see this, I see this particularly from old guys that say these new people coming into into uh, fly fishing, particularly for trout, ha- have no concept of etiquette. Okay. I mean, what what part of not crowding someone requires etiquette? It, isn't it just common sense? Isn't yeah. it like the golden rule?
0: Um, I don't know. I mean, I think there's two parts Do people to
1: that. need to be taught that they should fish 50 feet from another person?
0: I think... Maybe some people, I think two things on that. Maybe. Yeah. so two things, one and the bigger thing. So you talked about, you know, if you're going to go up to deckers on a Saturday, I could say the same thing about like, if you're going to go out on the Madison during the salmon fly hatch.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. And I think that, I don't know if I want to categorize it as uh, your words, old timers or, or whatever. Uh, I don't I think people have a, a the wrong expectation, you know? Sometimes they're fishing waters that are crowd there's just a lot of people out there and I think they think well, I I want privacy and I want to be kind of I want my space and and who and like this person's I mean, if you're going to go stand next to somebody and fish, like you're saying, that is obvious. That's just human empathy right you wouldn't just go crowd somebody like at the soccer field you're not going to walk up to them and just you know some stranger so similar on a trout stream i see that but when you start when you start populating a river with a lot of people like the madison Mm -hmm. or deckers or something it becomes very hard to meet everybody's expectation of how much space they want. And right. and, yeah. and so now you're going to go, okay, well, I'll just walk upstream further from that guy. Well, there's another mm-hmm. guy and there's another guy and there's another yeah. guy. And so yeah. do I just leave? I'm here to yeah. fish. And like
1: you leave, you leave, you get, you get, you get in your car and you leave and you go find someplace else. Um, you know, I used to, I mean, I get, I get low hold and high hold by people all the time, and I used to get I used to get really pretty hot and bothered about it, and okay. uh, would say passive aggressive things like "I'm not crowding you, am I?" When they got in next to me, um, but I, I don't do that anymore. I'm not that big, and I'm not that tough, so I don't you know I don't do that anymore. I just get up and leave. How much space is enough
0: space? How far away is is a far enough?
1: It depends on the person. Like, I think in the where's river, the you know? high hole line yeah. in the sand. Yeah, I mean, you know, a river in a river like the Madison or the Missouri, you don't need a lot of water, right? Because there's fish everywhere, and so I don't know I'll, if if you got to put a number on it, a hundred feet. Okay. Uh, but personal, you know, everybody has their own personal space requirements. To me, it's I don't want to see anybody. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leap. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go, I'm going to go around the bend. I'm going to take a walk. I'm going to keep going until I find a place where there's nobody around. I think
0: for me, I would, for me, it's, I don't want to see. So I would try to avoid going in where I can see somebody.
1: Yeah. Um, and yeah I'll try absolutely. I would
0: yeah. try and go to where I can't see people or if I right. see that, that he's moving and he's going to be, I mean, I will try to do that to the max extent, but I would also measure that with where am I fishing and what's going on. If I'm on a fly fishing trip to the Bighorn river with my brother and we've got, you know, at some point I have to go fishing. I'm going to fish, but I'm going to do the best I can. You know, at some point I have to fish, but I would, it's not fun for me to fish right next to somebody. So I will take less opportune water. I would mm-hmm, rather yeah. fish that. Right for my experience than to go into where, Oh, that looks really good. So let me fish next to him. I'm not going to do that.
1: And sometimes you find some really cool, you know, by going to the less opportune water, sometimes you find some really cool stuff and you might, you know, by taking a hike way downstream where nobody else fishes because it's not supposed to be as good. You might find a really good place.
0: Well, to your point, if you can drive to it and park, or if you can put a drift boat in, you're already in a place where, this this is going to be it's going to happen it's going it's going to be an issue it's going to happen, gonna happen. Yeah. yeah so again and that part of the for me is then the expectations having an expectation yeah. Of, yeah you know where am i going you know it's it's almost a different experience and so your question was you know for a young where what's with these people that don't have etiquette or younger people or i think that i think some people just don't know i think that they You know, but I also think that, uh, a lot of people have the wrong expectation about what the fly fishing experience might be. They expect like quiet, serene serenity, but then they go up to Deckers on a Saturday and it's, that ain't that, that ain't what you're going to get.
1: I also find that, um, I also find that I don't think I've ever been high hold or low hold by a young person, uh, you know, it's... um That's it's, great. And I hear this. I hear this complaint all the time. These young people don't know, you know, have any etiquette because they didn't have any peers to teach them. But every time I've been crowded, it's been by an old guy who <laughs> has fished there for a long time. That's his hole. And by God, he's going to fish there. He's just going to crowd you out. He's going to crowd me out. And, yeah. you know... I don't see, I don't see the same issue with, with younger people on the water.
0: Let me ask you this, Tom, how, how do you approach civility or not civility? How do you approach kind of the social aspect of fishing? Like, is there a time and a place where you will engage or talk to folks and like shake hands or, you know, like kind of how's the fishing been, or you're just going to be. No. Not even like to and from the parking lot or anything. Well, yeah,
1: yeah. I might say, you know. Good morning. How you doing? Nice day. (laughs) Might be a good hatch today. That's it. I'm not, I'm not very social on the water. You know, I'm not, I'm not going there to, I'm not going there to talk to people. If if you meet me on, on the water, um, you know, I'll, I'll say good morning and, but I'm not going to try to tell you what fly to use or ask you what fly you're using. And I'm going to be gone. You're not going to see me again.
0: (laughs) The ghost is going to ghost you.
1: Well, it's just, it's just, it, 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 it's just not a social fly fishing. Is not a social thing. Now if I'm fishing, you know, saltwater with a bunch of friends. Yeah, that's fun. That's fun.
0: Again, expectation. Like what are you, yeah. what are you trying to get out of it? Right? Yeah. All right. Fair. I have a question from a subscriber. Mm-hmm. Uh Wait out there. Subscriber uh, wrote in and wanted to know what surprises you or And I'll probably piggyback on that, but, you know, what keeps you learning? What do you do to continue to learn? And when you get out on the river, what are, you know, I feel like you've seen so much. What are some of the things that that surprise you or something that surprised you recently?
1: Well, one of the things, my backyard river has wild brooks, browns, and rainbows in it. And um, the other day I went down and was walking my dog and I saw a couple of decent sized rainbows together and I don't think these fish spawn in the winter time but I don't know why they were in the spot they were in and I thought well maybe, maybe these fish spawn a lot earlier than I think or maybe they're staging and, and migrating to uh, where they're going to spawn but that that surprised me Um. I had a friend who fished two days ago who sent me a picture of a great big brown trout. Vermont's open year-round now. It never used to be. The second year it's been open year-round. And sent me a picture of a big brown trout that he caught like over 20 inches on a river that's not too far from me. And I thought, wow, huh. Didn't think that river would fish very well during the winter. Um, you know, it's just a, it's a constant barrage of surprises which is why we do it right yeah 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 it's just it's hard to it's it's hard to nail it down to one thing because
0: well i guess what's intriguing about that answer to me is that you are surprised on the regular you know Mm -hmm. it's not (laughs) like oh yeah well every once in a while i get surprised no it's it's almost all the time and maybe you can't put your finger on like exactly what it is, but I think that's, what's beautiful about fly fishing too, is the river is always different. I mean, even just physically going to the river, it's not maybe a quote surprise, but you are seeing something different. You're being presented a different problem. Everything is a little bit different.
1: You know, what's often, it often really, now that I think of it, it, often relates to reading the water. Um, i'll i'll will see a fish or i'll hook a fish in a place and i'll think what the hell is that fish doing there <laughs> you know why is that fish there yeah that doesn't look like a really good feeding spot uh why is why why was he there uh that the, the those kind of things surprise me all the time why wasn't that fish over here where it looks better why was that fish in that spot and then also I'll, I'll try to I'll try to analyze it and I'll try, I'll look at the currents and I'll look at nearby cover and I'll try to figure out Hell, was that fish doing there?
0: In your career, did you ever keep a journal? Some people do that where they, they write things down. Did you ever like keep track of temperatures? And
1: yeah, I used to be really good at it and I'm terrible about it now. Um, You think that's valuable to do that? i think it's really valuable and i wish i did it more often i just when i get home from you know i fish a lot when i get home from fishing it's just just another chore yeah (laughs) um i will on a trip if i'm someplace new like i was in chile in uh in december and i'm uh working on a working on a a new book out actually outlining a new book and so uh i have been taking notes about that. But I, you know, it, it's really smart. It's really smart. Don't, don't do what I do, do what I say. And I'm Why saying, keep a journal. Why do you think keep, it's so good? Journal.
0: Because I'm, I'm just now starting to get into it. And here's my, here's my trick to Tom. Here's my trick, Tom. I'm, I'm developing this so that I don't have to write as much stuff. I can just like circle things, you know, just kind uh-huh. of like, it, yeah. it was, I don't yeah. have to write that it was sunny. I just circle the sun, you know, I circle, and then it goes a lot faster for me, and I've found that that helps me do it because. Well, that's the like pra- you said, That's it's a like pragmatic.
1: A chore. That's a pragmatic approach, but it's a little mechanical, and I think that I think that um, it'll help your fishing, fishing in the future. But um, if, if you if you do it more in a writing style, I think that ten years from now you're going to go back and really enjoy reading those things. Your thoughts on the river.
0: That's fair. I'll take that. So, I'll take that moving
1: forward. Yeah. So, um,
0: why do you think it's so valuable?
1: Know, it's, just, it's just nice memories. They're just, they're just nice memories.
0: Yeah. I like to, I like to go back and look and say, oh, this was when Tommy caught that sucker. And yeah, you know,
1: yeah, uh, yeah. And just, you know, recording water temperatures and hatches. Well, that's valuable. But I, I think that, you know, learn from my mistakes because I go back and look at these journals that I did back in the '70s and '80s and '90s, and think, "Oh, that's cool. I, for, I forgot all about that." Um, so, yeah, people should. I, I recommend that people, you know, and whatever works for you, whether it's whether it's on a computer, or whether it's on a a, a notebook with pencil, um, or whether it's in a spreadsheet. What, you know, whatever, whatever works for people, but it, it's a good idea and people, people should do it.
0: All right. Well, the memories, I think it's important to capture memories and we capture so many memories with photographs, but words, I think are very special as well. And, uh, telling stories and remembering stories, you can do certain things about the way you felt, uh, the way, what, what, what happened that day that you can't capture with a photograph too.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I do take a lot of pictures, so that I do have those memories, and I go back and look at those, and and that then that reminds me of things that happened. But, um, but I think that words words would 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 benefit would benefit me if I wasn't so lazy.
0: Do you have a special memory of a fish you caught in your backyard? Anything that stands out? You said you're out there all the time. Is there anything that was like really a unique? I uh, caught like a special fish or.
1: Yeah, I just remember one night I went down um, after dinner, and it's mostly small fish in this this creek, and um, there was a good hatch of sulfurs, and I was fishing a bamboo rod, and I hooked this brown trout that was I don't know maybe thirteen inches long, and he just tore up the pool. He just went upstream and downstream. And I finally, finally landed him and I thought, wow, that was really, really special. Just everything, you know, everything just clicked and it was a great, it was a great memory.
0: All right. I told you in the beginning, uh, or I told you before we started that we're not going to talk about kind of how you got into fly fishing and your fly fishing story and that type of thing. And I'm going to stay true to that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask you about those, but I do want to bring up something that I read. Um, and for people that do want to, to find out more about your story, Tom, the, the fish on the Tom Rosenbauer story at Orvis is a great article. I thought that it was very informative and, uh, it really told your story very well, but there's something that stood out in there that I want to bring up. And I thought we could kind of, uh, start winding down on this. Mm Um, it says, Tom is a self-proclaimed geek whose desk has long disappeared under stacks of books, papers, and fly-tying materials in mad scientists' disarray. He is credited with bringing beadhead flies to North America and is the inventor of the Big Eye Hook, magnetic net retriever and tungsten bead for fly-tying. And this is the part that really stuck with me. He is the kid who spent his youth capturing reptiles and amphibians. And while the other kids played sports, he was fishing on a pond near the school and discovering wild brook trout in a suburban Rochester stream, a bicycle to local streams evolved to a car headed to the Catskills and Adirondacks. He was a commercial fly tire at age 14. I guess, do you have anything that you would want to kind of say to those kids that were like you when they were little that, maybe they're not into sports or computers or whatever, but they just, they've got this kind of love of the outdoors. And the reason I ask is I think that sometimes we're told that this is the direction that you should go. And these are yeah. the kind of expectations people have. And certainly you're someone that as a child had this kind of love of the outdoors and fishing and, mm-hmm. and you've made a a great career out of it, Tom. And you know, that's unique and special. And I think that it's inspiring for a lot of people to see people that are doing that, doing something that they love. That they love, and so anything that you would comment on that kind of excerpt from that story.
1: Well, I just think you know, talking to talking to kids who are maybe the geeky kid who would rather look at bugs or fish or whatever. Uh, follow your passion, and um, it, it will it, it will always benefit you, whether you make a career out of it or not, uh, it'll be something that you can always carry with you and, um, and bring you joy. You may, again, you may not be able to be as lucky as me to make a living at it, but um, don't follow somebody else's path, follow your own path and follow your own passions.
0: I agree. Well, I appreciate you sharing that it's something that i think about when i take my son fishing or take him in the outdoors is maybe he's not going to grow up and be a professional in the outdoor space and i don't really need him to do that but what i do think is that i'm i take joy in knowing that i've given him like this skill set this tool this kind mm-hmm. of something that he can take like you said whether he's professional in it or not he has this kind of ability to go into the outdoors and um and enjoy himself and have fun relieve some stress maybe catch a fish
1: yeah yeah
0: all right tom last question you ready
1: yeah ready
0: if you could go back to when you first started fly fishing and give yourself two pieces of advice one more of a uh, philosophical piece and one more tactical what would you tell yourself to help you progress as a fly fisher
1: philosophically don't take it so seriously and um, don't stress out over not being able to tie a fly properly or catch a fish. And then tactically, um, don't wade cold spring creeks and blue jeans <laughs> and don't, don't crowd other anglers because you know, I, I talked earlier about the fact that that seems intuitive that we don't crowd other people. But now now that I think of it, I remember when I was a kid first starting fly fishing and, and started fishing streams where other people were fishing, that I would wade right up to them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And I'm still embarrassed by some of the things that I did when I first started out.
0: Well... I think that's a good answer. And I think that we talked about your credibility before Tom. And I think that that is, in my opinion, what brings you so much credibility is that you're not afraid to to say like, here's where I made mistakes. Here's where I learned, here's where I'm still learning. And I appreciate you sharing all the information you did today because I certainly learned a ton and I hope, uh, and I know that other people did as well. And thanks for being on the show. I really enjoyed talking with you and meeting you.
1: Well, you're very welcome, Jason, and I enjoyed talking to you as well. Those were some, some good questions, and uh, I had fun.
0: Thanks for listening to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. You can learn more about some of the topics we discussed in today's episode show notes. For more fly fishing ideas, stories, and artwork, check out my blog and online gallery at wadeoutthere.com. If you want to make Wade Out There a part of your own fly fishing journey, please subscribe and share. Until next time, Wade Out There.